continuing our study in the gospel according to St. Matthew this morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter 21, and we'll look at verses 10 through 13. Matthew 21, verses 10 through 13, that's page 826 in that hardback black Bible in the back of the pew. We're trying out a new microphone today, so be patient with us. Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 10. And when he'd entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. Father in heaven, we seek Christ this morning. We all come in here seeking to understand who our Savior Jesus is. By your Spirit's power, would you you show us Christ? Lord, show us how we can respond. Well, there's something that I haven't told you. There's something that I haven't told you about Jesus. That's not, doesn't really inspire hope or, or confidence in your pastor, does it? But, um, but it's true, I've been holding back. I've been teaching you for a couple years now, as we've looked through Matthew's gospel, that, that Matthew's goal in, in, in writing this gospel is to show us that Jesus is Messiah. And that's totally, 100% true. That's why this book is, is called a gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called gospels because they, they announce the arrival of the Christ, the Messiah. But I've summarized, one of the things that what I've been hiding from you is that I've summarized the idea of Messiah as anointed king. I've even titled this entire sermon series our merciful king, following Jesus through Matthew's gospel. But here's the thing. For Jesus to be Messiah, it doesn't just mean that he's the anointed king. His kingship, his, his rule over all things, that's the most important aspect of his role as Messiah. After all, at the, the, at the end of, of Matthew's gospel, he's going to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a very kingly thing to say, isn't it? But for Jesus to truly be Messiah, he has to be more than a king. What I haven't told you is that he must also be a prophet. A prophet who speaks to the people on behalf of God. And he must be a priest who intercedes on behalf of the people in the presence of God. Messiah must be all of these things, prophet and priest and king. 
And if you're wondering why that matters, well, it has everything to do with how Messiah saves. It's, it's, it's how Jesus saves his people. And we'll get to that. The, the entire Gospel of Matthew is, is moving us in that direction. But before we get there, Matthew has to build the case for us that Jesus is a prophet. Because if he's not a prophet, then he's not Messiah. He's got to be a prophet. Well, in our text this morning, Matthew proves to us that Jesus is a prophet. He's a prophet who speaks to God's people on God's behalf. And what's more, you're going to see that the prophet's message isn't just for those people way back then, a long time ago, in Jerusalem. The prophet's message is for us. Where we left off last week, Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem, and, and we saw very clearly he was entering as king. And, and the people of the city, so he enters the gates, and the people of the city of Jerusalem are asking that question, who is this? Who is this guy? What's all this hubbub about? And we don't have to look far for the answer. Look what the crowds say. The, the crowds who are coming in after Jesus, the ones following Jesus into Jerusalem, they know who he is. Look at verse 11. This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth in Galilee. Matthew couldn't be much clearer for us, could he? This is like bright, flashing sign. Hey, everybody, look. Let me show you. Jesus is a prophet. Mark and Luke and John, they don't include this because they're not writing with the same angle that Matthew is. But Matthew remembering back to what the, the Galileans were saying, remembers, Jesus is a prophet. I need to make sure that in my gospel, people see that. That's important. And Matthew's first bit of evidence for us that Jesus is a prophet is, is what? Well, it's the people, they recognize him to be a prophet. We've seen this before. People kind of know that Jesus is a prophet. Do you remember way back in chapter 16, Jesus is sitting there with his disciples, and he say, who do the people say that I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Those are all prophets. Word on the street was that Jesus is a prophet. Now, that says something to us. In fact, it says a lot as, we're, as Matthew's building this case. We, we could say it is a necessary condition when proving whether someone is a prophet, that people must recognize that they're a prophet. That people recognize Moses to be a prophet, and Elijah, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and, and John the Baptist. To be a prophet, it is necessary that the people would believe that Jesus is a prophet. But then what else do we know about people? Right? Millions of people all over the world believe Muhammad is a prophet. People all over the world believe Joseph Smith is a prophet. People believe Kenneth Copeland is a prophet. He's, he's profited from that false belief. But that doesn't make these men prophets, does it? Not true prophets. So, so while the testimony of the people that Jesus is a prophet is a necessary condition for him being a prophet, it isn't a sufficient condition. We, we need more than that. And more is what Matthew gives us here. And actually, he's going to do this for several chapters. But to start it off, he says that, that once Jesus entered the city and the people are following him, said he was a prophet, Jesus goes directly to that place that God's people had made an idol out of. 
And he does something very prophet-like there. Look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, does that remind you of anything else that you've ever seen in the Bible? Is it, it, maybe it should. How about, how about when the prophet Moses returned to the Israelite camp and saw the people and the idol that they had made and that they were worshiping? We look at Exodus 32, 19. Just kind of think of the tone of what Jesus has just done and think of, of the tone of Exodus 32, 19. Exodus 32, 19 says, And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. The idolatry among the people of God got treatment, didn't it? And there's certainly a similarity, at least in the tone of Jesus' response when you match it to Moses' response. Flipping tables and chairs and driving people out of the temple. This is, a, this is an enormous courtyard, and Jesus is making an enormous scene. Really, this is several acres. He's driving everyone out. This is a violent act. And he, he looks like a prophet as he's doing this. The, the only difference is, we look at Exodus, and there's a golden calf, and it's clearly an idol. But then, in Matthew, where's the idol? Right, there, there aren't any altars set up to Baal. There's no golden calves there in the temple courtyard. It doesn't look like the same type of idolatry. So the question is, is it? Why has Jesus responded like this? Well, it's, it's kind of complicated. And, and, and normally I wouldn't spend a lot of time trying to explain it, but I think whatever is happening there, whatever makes Jesus respond to that way is something that we want to get to the heart of. And so we're going to take a little time on this. Let me set the scene for you. The, the sacrificial system originated in Exodus, or at least it was codified, it was written down during the Exodus of God's people from Egypt, and, and at that time, all of God's people were together, right? One nation, 12 enormous tribes, and the place of God's presence was the tabernacle, and it moved with the people. Well, centuries have passed since Moses, and now God's people are spread all over the place. They're in southern Europe, and they're in northern Africa, and they're in central Asia, three continents, but they still practice their religion by returning to Jerusalem, returning to the temple, the place of God's presence. And they do that especially at Passover. We've been talking about this the last few weeks. This is the most important holiday of the year for the people. This is the, the time when Jerusalem would have been at its most crowded because people were flooding in from all over the place. But you also need to know this about the sacrificial system. It was messy. And it's complicated. You need animals for it. And while in Exodus, bringing a lamb into 
the tabernacle area is, is pretty straightforward because it's just in the field right outside. It's not very practical to bring a heifer or a ram or a goat with you for hundreds and hundreds of miles, is it? Well, thanks to the partnership between the Sadducees who run the temple operations and some savvy entrepreneurs in Jerusalem, now you can buy your sacrifices in the temple courtyard. If you're poor, that's okay too. There are people selling pigeons for you to sacrifice. You don't have the right currency, no problem. We have money changers over here so that, that you can exchange your money and you can, you can make the purchases that you need to make. There was an entire marketplace dedicated to making worship convenient for the pilgrims. The, the rituals of worship were made easy and convenient, and most importantly, these things were happening at the temple. Jesus knows this is going on. This has been going on his entire life, or at least something akin to it has. So he goes directly to the place where this is happening, and he blows it up. And the question is, why? Jesus, what's wrong with, with making worship more convenient? What's wrong with making it easier for people to be faithful to God? And, and some, some might say, well, well, the issue here is these merchants. They're dishonest. They're, they're greedy for gain. They're ripping people off. And that's why Jesus is upset. He's fine with the buying and selling. He knows that the sacrifices and all that stuff's got to go on. He just doesn't like that they're charging $8 for kosher hot dogs and $12 for a beer. That, that bothers him. And so he flips over the tables. But I don't think that's what the issue is. Look at verse 12. Who did Jesus drive out of the temple? Just the merchants? No, Matthew says he drove out those selling and those who were buying. He even flipped the chairs over of the guys who were selling pigeons to the poor people so the poor people could come worship. Now nobody can do their sacrifices because Jesus has made a mess of everything. If Jesus is just condemning the greed of the merchants, why does he drive out everyone else too? I think, I think the answer is, is it's not just greed here. The text tells us why Jesus is upset. Look at what he says in verse 13. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus, by doing this, he's using two passages from the Old Testament, two prophecies. And he's bringing them together, much the same way that we saw Matthew do last week. The first is this, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And that comes from Isaiah chapter 56. We've seen Isaiah 56 before in the last couple chapters. It'll come to you as we get through, go through this. In, in Isaiah 56, the point is this, the place of God's dwelling, the temple, is going to be a place for all peoples. It will one day, that's, it's a prophecy, it will one day happen. In the age of the Messiah, it will be a place where foreigners are welcomed and outcasts are welcomed, literally the entire world, all the nations. Anyone who loves the name of the Lord and serves the Lord will be welcomed into God's presence. But here's the thing, as of Matthew 21, verse 13, that hasn't happened Yet, it's future 
The word shall is kind of tricky for us because we think of an imperative, like you shall do this. But it's a future tense. It's going to happen. It will happen. Messiah is going to make it happen. He's already clued us in that he's going to make this happen. If you remember back in chapter 19, he was welcoming children. Before that, he was welcoming Gentiles. Before that, he was welcoming the unclean. He even made it clear that he was going to welcome eunuchs into his presence. Remember that? We talked about singleness a few weeks ago. The kingdom is being fulfilled in Christ. And the temple in will be different than what it is now. And all of that has been building to this point. In the new kingdom, God's house will be, shall be, a house of prayer. So that's the Isaiah 56 part. But the second half of this quote that Jesus says, it is written, but you have made it a den of robbers. That comes from Jeremiah 7, which you heard John read for us earlier. And when he quotes Jeremiah 7, this is important, saying, it's going to be that. Messiah is going to make the temple that, but you're going in the opposite direction. The temple is going to be like this, no more dividing walls between the nations in Israel. That's where redemptive history is moving because of Messiah's arrival, but you are stuck way back there. You are in the same place that you were when Jeremiah preached to you, and that was a long time ago. Hundreds of years have passed, but Israel hasn't changed. They haven't grown more faithful. They haven't grown more responsive to God. They're just stuck in their traditions. We read Jeremiah 7 earlier, and you may have noticed the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. He's there at the temple, and then he spoke. It's a sermon. You read Jeremiah 7 in its entirety, you get very much a sense that he's sermonizing. He's preaching in front of the temple. And that was the first temple. So in in Jeremiah 7, he talks about Shiloh. That was the place of, of God's presence with his people before the first temple. That was destroyed. The first temple comes along. Jeremiah condemns that place. That one is destroyed. And now Jesus is in front of the second temple. And we'll get to what's going to happen there. But Jesus is standing in the same place that Jeremiah was, echoing the same sermon that Jeremiah preached. Only this is a new temple, the second temple. Well, the context of Jeremiah's sermon, most of us probably aren't familiar with this, so I'll just give you a a quick synopsis. The context is is Jeremiah is preaching to the southern kingdom, the the people of Judah. They had recently lost the good king Josiah in, in a battle, and the Egyptians had taken possession of the land. So they are, as God's people in Judah, servants to Egypt. They have their own king, sort of. His name's Jehoiakim, and he was put in place by the Egyptians. He's more of a a puppet king to the Egyptian government. And Judah, the southern kingdom, God's people, they're okay with this because they believe that trusting in Egypt will at least protect them from the Assyrians. And the devil you know is better than the devil you don't type of thing that that they were thinking. So the Assyrian Empire is rapidly expanding. They're kind of coming south. 
And God's people are thinking, well, we can trust Egypt. They'll protect us. And in their hearts as a nation, they're trusting that Egypt will protect them. But outwardly, they're still going to the temple. And they're going through these rituals of sacrifice at the temple. They were treating the temple as kind of a, a good luck charm. Like out here on the outside, on our outside walls, we've got Egypt to protect us. In here on the inside, we've got our good luck charm, the temple. And Jeremiah walks into the temple courtyard, and he pronounces judgment on the nation. That's what Jeremiah 7 is. And his sermon is essentially this. You have one choice. Repent and obey the Lord or be exiled. And then he points to the temple, their good luck charm, and he says, do not trust in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Don't keep saying that as if saying that is going to save you. The temple can't save you. It's a pile of stones arranged majestically to look big and to look like a, a safe place for you. But this temple is not what makes you God's people. God's covenant with you is what makes you God's people. And you've broken that covenant. And then he goes on, look at verse 9. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely, making offerings to Baal? Baal is an idol, a false god. And go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we're delivered only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a, here it is, a den of robbers in your eyes? You see what Jeremiah means by that? Because it's the same thing by that. I'm just going to switch. Hey, Ian, switching. So there's that den of robbers saying, you, you've made my house into a den of robbers. And when he says that, he's summarizing all of their sins. He's not just saying you're guilty of robbery, okay? Don't mistake that. He's summarizing all their sins with that word robbers. They're worshiping false gods. They're swearing oaths. They're committing adultery. They're oppressing people. They're stealing. They're murdering. And rather than repenting and seeking the Lord and taking refuge in the Lord, they're taking refuge in the temple. You see the difference? There's a subtle difference between taking refuge in a place and taking refuge in God himself. They're believing that somehow this temple is a magical fortress that protects them. And Jeremiah says, it's no more that than it is a secret hideout for a gang. And if you read the rest of Jeremiah 7, you find this message. God is going to destroy that temple. See, when you read the Old Testament, you find this. God always destroys idols. Moses crushed the golden calf. Gideon destroyed the altars to Baal. King Josiah destroyed the Asherah and all these other altars. God always destroys the idols of his people. To trusting in something else that isn't God, God will take it away. And that's for your good. When he does that, the people are to turn. We are to turn and see that it's the Lord we're supposed to trust. 
not a place, not our rituals, not their sacrifices. It's God alone who saves. And that's Jeremiah's message. And anyone in the temple courtyard, when Jesus flipped over those tables, they would have heard echoes of that sermon. They would have been familiar with Jeremiah's sermon. So when Jesus comes in and he repeats that damning line, you've made my father's house a den of robbers. They, they know, or at least they are getting the hint. Jesus is prophesying judgment on us. He is prophesying the end of the temple. Rather than, than a place of repentance and worship, the temple had become a place where the, where the people could be comfortable in their sin. In their hearts, they could live as rebels against God and then use the temple and the temple sacrifices as, as their place of refuge. And that is the Jeremiah 7 prophetic message of Jesus. Jesus the prophet is in every way announcing the beginning of the end of the temple. When we get to chapter 24, it's going to be blazing clear for us. Isaiah, 65, or Isaiah 56, the prophecy is that a new temple is coming, and Jesus is going to fulfill that prophecy himself. That's what we're going to see in Matthew. He will become the temple. He will become the center of worship for God's people. He will become the one who draws in the nations, who draws in the outcasts. And by fulfilling that prophecy, he will also fulfill his priestly role interceding for us in the presence of God. Jesus is Messiah. He is prophet. He's priest. He's king. But here's the thing. When Jesus Christ becomes the temple, his people, as his body, become the extension of that temple. That's us. Peter says, you, you this is Peter talking to a church in 1 Peter, you, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What's a spiritual house? It's a temple. You're being built up as a spiritual house. You, the people. Paul says it even more clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, do you not know? You are, in this plural you, you all, you are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in you. But what that means for us is that what Jesus says here in Matthew 21 to these people standing in front of their old temple applies to us today. After all, if what Jeremiah said to the people in 600 BC applied to the people in 33 AD, it applies to God's people today. And there are two points of application that we're just going to wrestle with for the rest of our time. Right? The first is this. This one's shorter. Jesus said that the new temple would be a house of prayer. That was the prophecy. It shall be, it will be a house of prayer. So here we are, the body of Christ. Are we a house of prayer? Are we a place of prayer? When we gather together as Christ's body, is it for prayer? Do you look forward to gathering with God's people for prayer? When the one of the pastors does the pastoral prayer, you kind of roll your eyes or do you look forward to that? 
a time where we as a church are praying for our Savior. Jesus said that the, the temple would become a house of prayer, a place where the nations and the outcasts and the nobodies gather to praise them. Is that who we are? I'll tell you this much, as your pastor, that's who we want to be. Okay, we don't do this perfectly. We're striving for this, though. This is one of our goals as a church, that we would be a prayerful people. I believe that these, these last recent Wednesday night prayer services that we've had over the last three weeks, they have been a gift from God. I really do believe that. I was telling some other pastors that this week. It was, it was praise. How can we pray for you? We want to praise God that he has led us into prayer. Because he has. And I believe that through that, God is, is showing us again what it means to be his people, what it means to seek him in prayer. We are rediscovering that. And it's good. And you can expect that this will become a more regular aspect of the life of our church. And, and I'll just say this. If prayer is of no interest to you or if it's hard for you, it seems boring, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but ask the Lord, pray that the Lord would increase your desire for prayer, to seek him. Because here's what prayer is. Prayer is worshiping him. It's praising him. It's giving thanks to him. It's interceding for others. If you don't desire the Lord in this way, ask him to change your desires. The second point of application is this. This is going to, this was harder for me to wrestle with this week. But I think we need to. Jesus, if you remember there, here we are in Matthew 20, Jesus is rebuking a people whose trust was in the physical temple. The physical temple had become their place of security, their refuge, their protection from God's wrath. They thought, as long as we have this building, this pile of stones, we'll be on God's good side. Now let's bring that forward. Jesus Christ has replaced that physical temple. and His spirit fills his people and is present with the gathering of his people. So a church gathering, what we're doing right now, this is analogous to that physical building. So let me ask you, is your gathering with God's people what gives you assurance? Do you think that because you're gathering with God's people, you are safe from God's wrath? I think most of us say, well, no, not, not if you put it like that. But let's come at it from another angle, because this is the way that Jesus came at it. In our text, the temple had become a place where people could continue in their sin and still feel comfortable because they belonged to the temple people, and they did the temple thing. But they're, they're hiding sin in here. And out here, they're doing the temple thing. And Jesus said, the temple has become, because of that, the temple has become a hiding place for robbers. So let's ask it this way. Is the church, is the gathering of God's people, a place where you feel like you can hide your sin? 
you feel like you can live one way out there in the world, whether that's publicly or privately on your own, doesn't matter. Can you be one person out there and then come here? And because you're here, you can, you can play the part. And you can do your temple. And act like a Christian for a couple hours and then feel assured because you were here and these people welcomed you. Feel assured that everything's okay. Meanwhile, your heart is still far from God. That's what's happening. If the church gathering has become that way to you, then the church has replaced Christ in your life. The church has become your source of assurance, your source of peace. And friends, that's idolatry. is where our assurance is. Christ's work alone is where we have forgiveness. Christ's work alone is where we have peace with God. As the body of Christ, as a membership, we have to actively work to prevent the body from replacing Christ. In our, in our gauge of health, our, our gauge of progress in this work our determination of whether we're pointing people to Christ is to ask, how do we deal with sin as a church? Do we cover it up? And shrug our shoulders? Or do we deal with it? Christ has dealt with it. We can take refuge in him. We don't have to hide it. So church, in what ways do we allow ourselves to be a den of robbers? In what ways are we going about our days as a church and allowing one another to come here and still be comfortable in sin? And so one of the ways that we can deal with this is just to ask good questions, right? So what questions do we avoid asking? And I, the only reason I know that this is happening is because I do it, right? So what questions do you avoid asking one another in order to pretend that everything is okay? And then the other issue that we deal with is what we, we gloss over sins. We kind of say, well, like, kind of everybody's guilty of these ones, these acceptable sins, or as Jerry Bridges calls them, respectable sins. And we just kind of ignore those, leave them over here, and then we deal with the big ones that kind of are more publicly shameful. So let's talk about some of these ones. Is greed an accepted sin amongst us. Can you be materialistic and feel comfortable here with these people? Del Cerro Baptist. Are, are we a place where the love of money and the trust in money is excused as kind of normal, acceptable, American, as long as we don't do shameful things. Or how about this? Will we be a gathering of people where racism is acceptable? And I don't mean this, you're racist because you're white. No, I'm just saying, if it's something you can't repent of, then it's something you can't be held accountable for. I mean actual racism. Right? The, the kind, the kind that, that is prejudice 
the kind that shows favoritism towards a certain group of people because they're like you. It's the type of thought that says, because you look different from me or because you're culturally different from me, or you like different things from me, well, I, then I'm superior to you. And I'm going to treat you that way. That's sin. That's wicked. But is that acceptable in our body? Can someone who thinks that way take refuge here and think that they're protected here and that they can continue in that? Will, be a, will we be a church where sexual sin, as long as it's not really gross, is acceptable? Will we, as a church, will we, will we fight just as hard to protect our, our men and our women from pornography and adultery as we would to protect them from other sins that we find more shameful? Will we fight together as a church to honor marriage and renounce divorce? Or will we just kind of be like the world as long as nobody gets hurt? Will we be a people who are zealous to honor the Lord with our time because the days are evil? Or will the damning sin of laziness be accepted here as one of those everybody does it type sins? Is anxiety a disorder or is it unbelief? Is drunkenness funny? Is dishonesty okay as long as nobody gets hurt? Is slander and gossip acceptable so long as it doesn't get back to the person that we're talking about? See what I'm getting at? You see how a church can so quickly become a den of robbers? Where we affirm one another in sin. Christians, listen, just as the Jews were called to live in holiness, we, even more so, are called to live in holiness before God. The only difference is we have even more reason to live in obedience. Christ has died for us. He's given us freedom from sin. For us, there's nothing to hide. Christ has taken upon himself our shame. Is he hung on the cross? So in him, we know this. There's no condemnation in Christ. That's what we confess as a church. There's no reason, absolutely no reason at all, why we should continue, why any church would ever continue, knowing what Christ has accomplished, how we could possibly make a church a comfortable place to continue in sin when Christ has taken our sin. 1 John 1 Verses 5 through 7, let me read this just in its entirety and let John, the Spirit, preach to us. John says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, which is say while we hide our sin, we lie. We don't really have fellowship with him. We do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we come here and pretend that we aren't really going to deal with our sin because we're not that bad. We're not actually robbers. If we, when we're gathered as Christ's body, if confession of sin is 
foreign to us because it just is easier to hide it than we're deceiving ourselves, as John says. The truth is not in us. But here's the good news. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a, that's a reminder to us as Christians. But for those of you who aren't trusting in Christ, I know there's people here who are not, they were just kind of exploring Christianity or checking it out for the first time. If you're not trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, listen, he is trustworthy. In fact, he is the only one who is. There's nothing that you can do. There's no temple you can hide in. No physical building, that is. Nothing is going to save you from the wrath of God. Nothing you can do will allow you to escape. You're guilty. There's nowhere you can go except to Jesus Christ. Hide in him. Repent of who you were and become his. Belong to him. And then every time you confess sin, you know what's happening? You're worshiping him. You're praising him for covering you. You're you're being reminded of the work that he's accomplished for you. And you become little by little more like him because he cleanses you from your sin. Church, I know you all affirm that and you, you say, you would say the same thing to someone who is outside of Christ. Maybe not the same way. But I need to ask again, do we really believe that? Do we believe that for ourselves? Do we really believe that Christ has died to free us from our sin? Let's then live as a people who are free from our sin. In your friendships here in the church, in your Bible studies, in your discipling relationships, when when you're with one another, just do this. Confess sin. Confront it. Bring it into the light. And then ask one another difficult questions if that's not happening. Ask, how's your money being used? Is it glorifying God? Are you trusting it or are you trusting in God? Ask, what are you watching? Does it glorify God? Is it edifying to you? Ask, how are you spending your time? When you get that little screen time notification on Sundays, What does it say? Are you ashamed? Would you ever show anybody that number? Ask about anxiety. Ask about idols. Confront them. Confront malice and confront gossip and confront anger and confront impulsiveness and lack of self-control. Why? Why should we do that? Why should we go through the trouble of all of that discomfort? Because church, we are not a den of robbers. That's not who we are. We're the temple of Jesus Christ. Christ has caused us to be born again into him and he's made us living stones and he's he's building us up together to unashamedly proclaim his excellencies. And how can we do that if we don't say what he's done for us? He's called us to be his glory. To praise him for his work and to declare to one another that we have freedom in him. 
It's what it means that we're a church together. So we can unashamedly confess sin to one another. Amen? Let's ask for help in that.